All right, well, let's get after it. If you've got a Bible, Hebrews chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there is a hardback under a seat around you. You are more than welcome to open up and look with us. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, if you're new with us today, uh, or if you've been visiting, we're walking through the book of Hebrews. Uh, We just took a two-week break, and we'll jump back in. Uh, We are entering into what you could call the stretch run of Hebrews, okay? So there is... So far, no end in sight um, in a sense that we're starting, we're finishing up chapter 10 today, and we're going to go until we are done with Hebrews uh, over the next couple months. Uh, So we've been in the book for a very long time. It's a long book. Uh, We've had lots of good experiences in it, um, but we are entering into kind of the stretch run uh, as we go through Hebrews. We're in chapter 10 uh, today uh, in a very, very interesting passage, um, one that might challenge and, and maybe even confuse some of us and some of where we are uh, in our Christian life. Um, the passage we'll be in this morning is kind of a transition passage out of what we've been talking about since chapter 7 of Hebrews. So if you've been with us throughout the series, uh, you know a few months ago as we hit chapter 7, we started talking about something. We've been in kind of that same theme all the way up till today at the end of chapter 10. And so we'll kind of transition out of that and into the next couple of months, uh, which will be on a real famous portion of the Bible here in Hebrews about faith and all the people who had faith and what their faith looked like and all those types of things. Um, if you'll remember, in chapter 7, we started talking about this guy named Melchizedek. You remember Melchizedek? Yeah. Melchizedek. And so we know, as we were reading Hebrews, the author wanted to talk to us about Melchizedek a couple times. Uh, he felt like maybe we weren't ready for it, like the, the readers weren't ready for it. So he took a time out in chapter 6. He kind of Gave him a little spanking, just real fast. And then in chapter 7, started up with Melchizedek. And he started talking, explaining to us what it means that Jesus is our high priest. That, that Jesus functions for us like a high priest functioned in the Old Testament, under the law. Um, back in those days when the Old Testament was written and being used in practice. Um, and so the high priest was a bridge between God and man. He would go into God's presence on our behalf to offer sacrifices, prayers, intercession, those types of things. And he starts unpacking for us that Jesus is our high priest. And then as he keeps working out of chapter 7, he, he gets into maybe a larger concept, which is that you and I are in this period of time that we call the New Covenants. So God has, has always made promises with his people. We call them covenants. He's made promises with them. In Genesis 12, he makes a promise to Abraham. It says, through you, through your family, Israel, I will enact my plan of salvation and redemption. And he makes this promise with the law. And he says, follow the law. Work the sacrificial system like this. This is a high priest. This is a sacrifice. This is the temple, the tabernacle. But then the New Testament, the scriptures say, there was a new promise made to God's people. We call it the new covenant. It had been promised back in the time of the Old Covenant. The New Covenant was all about this idea that God would do something so that He would be our God and we would be His people. If you remember, that's the key phrase there. He will be our God and we will be His people. Part of that, um, there are two real big parts of that. The first was that He would um, forgive our sins. He would forget our iniquities, forgive our sins. And the second would be that he would transform us, like we were saying, from the inside. That no longer would we need to um, kind of like write the laws on us or put it on our doors and constantly be reminding ourselves of it. But that he would do some kind of supernatural work where he wrote it inside of us, like on our hearts. From the inside, he would transform us into his people. And as our sins were forgiven, as we were transformed, the promise he had made would be true. He would be our God and we would be his people. 
And so he, he unpacks first what it means that Jesus is our high priest in this new covenant. Then he continues to go on and talks about the tabernacle. If you'll remember, um, the tabernacle had this inner place, the Holy of Holies, God's presence. And Hebrews says, Jesus, our high priest, has gone into the actual presence of God, heaven itself, where the tabernacle just pointed towards. Um, and then we, we talked about sacrifice, if you remember that. Because really the most explosive idea in Hebrews is that the sacrifice our high priest presents is not the sacrifice of an animal. It's himself. He is the sacrifice. Jesus died for our sins. That his blood is what washes us away, allows us to be forgiven and to enter into God's presence to find salvation, joy, hope, all of those things. And now what we'll do here in this passage is we'll transition out of that huge kind of thought mode of the temple and sacrifice and priest, and we'll move into, again, this idea of faith. But to do that, he's going to unpack for us a warning. He's going to unpack for us a very severe, strict, kind of in-your-face warning about what would happen if you reacted to those truths in the wrong way. If you'll remember, you can even look here in Hebrews chapter 10, um, the last passage we had here a few weeks ago, 19 through 25, Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. And he talks about since we have a high priest, since we have this sacrifice, let us, let us, let us. There are three things that we should respond to those truths with doing. One of them was worship. Let us draw near to the throne of God. Let's worship him. Let's praise him. Let's enjoy him. Let's press into him. The second was loyalty. Let's hold fast. Let's make a decision that he defines us. And then the third, if you'll remember, was community. Mother says, hey, don't stop meeting together like the habit is of some. But get together as often as possible. Encourage each other. Stir each other up to good works, to love, to faith, to hope. Get together. He says that's the appropriate reaction to Jesus, his sacrifice, to his high priesthood. But if there's an appropriate reaction... Oftentimes there's an inappropriate reaction. Oftentimes there's a decision that you can make in the other direction that would be wrong. Hebrews, the author here, says that his sacrifice, his priesthood, it demands a decision from us. It demands that we either embrace it or reject it. That we let it define us in our lives or that we move away from it. And so he's going to offer a warning to us. We struggle with these warnings in Hebrews. I mean, there's a few of them. This is maybe the strictest, the most severe. We struggle with them, I think, because we have relegated the Christian life to a decision we make at one point in time that only has effects after we die. Like a get-out-of-hell-free card, something like that. And because that's how we view the good news, that's how we view the gospel, when we come to passages where the Bible kind of kicks us in the rear and says, look, you need to do something about your faith, we go, whoa, 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 whoa. Where is this coming from? This is news to me. You mean there, there are consequences if I don't live out the faith right now? Those type of things. And so um, we've got to, I think, to be faithful, let the text at least rub against us. Like, let us feel the tension at least. We're going to read things. You're not going to like them. You're just not, probably. But at the very end of the day, I mean, you've got you to make a decision about what this, what this book is. Is it someone's thoughts or opinions? Or is it the inspired word of God to you? And we'll let, it, we'll let it kind of rub up against us. If worship and loyalty and community are the right responses, what are the wrong responses? Hebrews 10, let's read it. We'll pick it up in verse 26, okay? Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of this covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. 31. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall, verse 32, the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach, affliction, being partners with those who were treated such. For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says here that there's a certain kind of life that you can live even after you have joined the Christian community, and however you want to define that, whether that's with a confession or a prayer or filling out a piece of paper, whatever that is, after you have labeled yourself a Christian, there's a certain way that you can live that he says ends in destruction. So just to be as clear as possible with everybody in here, verse 39, those who shrink back will be destroyed. That's not good news. That doesn't make me feel warm and fuzzy inside. But it's there. If you shrink back, you will be destroyed. He seems to be saying that even for you and I, even for those who, again, are in some sense part of a Christian community, there seems to be this fatal mistake possible. This mistake that you can make that, again, ends in something deadly. And he talks about shrinking back. It it seems like the, the fatal mistake is abandoning the faith. It's turning around at some point in time. It's turning around and rejecting Jesus' sacrifice, his priesthood. He says, those who shrink back are destroyed, but those who press forward, who have faith, they will preserve their souls. So this is actually, if you remember, you have a good memory, this is actually pretty much exactly what he says in Hebrews chapter 6. If you remember the passage, again, one of the more controversial passages in Scripture, he says, those having once been enlightened, those receiving spiritual things, if they then fall away... There is no hope for them. I mean, verbatim, that's what he has. There remains no hope for them. And we talked, and we're going to repeat it here this morning. Um, the analogy I use in Hebrews 6, I think, applies again to this passage. Uh, if you'll remember, a few summers ago, I went to Colorado and was climbing up a 14,000-foot mountain. We were getting to the top after just the most horrific six hours of my life. Uh, and we have, like, maybe 50 feet until the top, okay? Um, by this point, uh, I'm kind of praying that our journey will end okay 
uh, I mean, the big thought in all of our heads is, this is an awesome view. I don't think 50 feet is going to really enhance it, okay? So let's <laughs> camp out here, and then let's just mosey on down, okay? Um, but we're heading up, and we get to maybe like this 50-foot last little section where it's almost, I mean, pure up and down, pure vertical, and it's just loose rock. And so we're walking up, and here's what's happening to me. We're walking, I mean, climbing, I mean, we're going up there. There's like maybe 12 of us, a few leaders, like mountain men. Um, and we're going up, and rocks are coming down as we go up to the point where you yell, rock, and then you avoid the rock that's coming down. But if you pay attention, the rock doesn't stop going down. Like, there's no safety net behind this little, like, cliff. The rock goes, and it tumbles, and it tumbles, and it tumbles, and it tumbles. So you can't see it anymore, and you can only imagine that it's tumbling, and tumbling, and tumbling, and tumbling. And so I'm, I mean, I'm a thinker. I'm going, that's not good. <laughs> in fact, I think I was the last one in this line of people climbing up. So I've got two thoughts. One, if I fall, I'm the rock. <laughs> two, if someone else falls, they're taking me down with them. And so I'm, I mean... Forgive me, but I'm, a, I'm working on my dodge technique, right? So, I mean, you're going down, just, I can't help you at that point, okay? I'll pray for you. You've got, like, 12 seconds, probably, of a fall. I'll be praying, but I'm getting out of the way. I don't want you to take down with me. So I yell to the mountain man leader, right? What happens if we fall? And he goes, don't fall. <laughs> and I'm like, that's a bad answer. Wrong. <laughs> and he goes... Don't look down. We're going up there. Let's go. Now, looking back, I mean, I really would have hoped if he really thought I was, we could fall. Like, that was a somewhat legit possibility that he would have been acting differently. You know, maybe he would have been behind us, something like that. But his warning, I think, was a cogent one. It was, look, we're going this way. There's really no option about it. This is where we're going. I mean, this is where we're headed. But if you really want to know, if you fall off... There's only one outcome to that. Don't look down. I think that's the best analogy we have here for these warnings. Again, to a Christian community in Hebrews 6, who is very clear, he doesn't think this will happen to them. But he's telling them, this is what would happen if you fell, if you shrinked back, if you turned away. But we're going this way. So let's go. Wake up. Put your shoes on. Let's walk. He doesn't answer the same questions that we might ask him. Is that possible? I mean, could you fall? It's like me yelling to the leader and he says, don't. Let's go. We're going this way. And so he says to a Christian community who he thinks is in danger of not finishing the race. I mean, this is what Hebrews is written for. To try to wake them up and say, Get your eyes in the right place. Keep going. Keep walking forward. And we've talked about this entire series. I think we're in the exact same place. I mean, I really do think we are in a dangerous position just in our culture and society and everyday lives and as a church that if we're not careful, we shrink back. We turn away. And here's what I think is even more dangerous about it for you and I. I don't think it's going to be like a big public dramatic thing. I don't think the danger for most of us in this room is that one day we wake up and we come to church and as I'm preaching, you interrupt me, you come up here and say, I don't believe. And then you walk out and we never see you again. And we go, oh, that's unfortunate. They turned away. I think for us, the danger is that without even maybe realizing it's happening, we stop obeying and we stop pursuing and we stop praying and we stop meeting together. And then 
If God is gracious, we wake up in 10 years and realize it. If God is not gracious, we die. And he says it's a fearful thing to have that conversation with God. That conversation where he goes, what happened? What were you doing? What did you think I would react to that kind of life with? This is a fearful thing. I think that, the, I mean, the danger is, I think, distraction. You call it like a spiritual ADD. Like you get distracted, you see something shiny, and then things that wouldn't normally make sense start to make sense to you. Does that make sense? No. Let me explain it. One example, then we move on. So here's my life, right? I understand intellectually, I can unpack for you the scriptures behind it, the fact that I exist to serve the people around me. The world doesn't exist for me. And that's a really big distinction because it's going to affect how you live your life day to day and how frustrated you get day to day. But I lose sight of that sometimes. You know why? Um, One, I don't have a family. I'm not married. Um, I kind of do my own thing. So it's very easy for me to get into the trap. The whole world's kind of about me, right? I don't live with my sister anymore where I'm constantly confronted with the fact that there are other people who exist and they have other needs and desires and those type of things. So what happens to me, I get distracted. I don't look at that truth. And then Tuesday, I'm annoyed with every single person that talks to me. And I say, why are you even alive? You are not helping me in any sort of way here. Yeah, no. You have all these prayer requests. You have all these different things for me to do. Guess what? I've got things to do too. I've got things you can help me with. And I'm frustrated. I'm out of control. And what happened is I, I didn't like dramatically say, guess what? I'm the center of the world. I hate everybody. I got distracted. And so normally those type of annoyances and frustrations wouldn't make sense. If I understood I'm not the sinner. I'm here to serve other people. They can't interrupt me and annoy me. because That's what I'm here for. But I get distracted and then things start happening that don't, don't really make sense. We lose sight of who Jesus is and then lifestyles, actions, decisions start to change. We get distracted. I don't think for us it's necessarily a big public dramatic thing. Which I think, again, might be more fearful. I think that might be more dangerous. So he talks about this fatal mistake. That that there are ways you can react to Jesus' sacrifice and his priesthood that would end in destruction. And I think he's going to outline for us in, in this text here two big steps that you take to get there. Okay? Two big, giant steps that you take as you're distracted or whatever's happening to you that would wind up where you might fall in verse 39 where he says, those who shrink back are destroyed. Let's look at this first one. Right as we start the passage in verse 26, he says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. Okay, he actually is getting this from an Old Testament reference. In Numbers 15, 21 through 22, and also other places in the Old Testament, it is clearly spelled out that if you sin on purpose, there's no forgiveness for you. So, so I mean, natural reaction is, wow, that is strict. Like, that's harsh. But you know, we've been talking about sacrifice, blood washing sins away, that type of stuff. The Old Testament, the law, this Old Covenant was very clear. If you sin on purpose, there was no sacrifice for you. 
So imagine if this was like the temple organization. I was the priest. You would come to me to confess your sins. I would offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And you came to me a week after I told you not to have sex with someone who's not your wife. And you come to me and said, sorry, I committed adultery. And I would look you in the eye and say, sorry, there's no forgiveness for you. You knew that was wrong. There's nothing I can do for you. There's not a sacrifice for you for that. The punishment in the Old Testament is one of two things. Kick them out or kill them. Now again, to us, and maybe rightly so, that's like, whoa, that is way left field. Like, that's way harsh. But if, if you think about it, I mean, maybe even sociologically, for a group of people who are nomadic and who are trying to establish worshiping one God amidst all these other religions and temptations and dangers, what's happening there is they're saying, look, if, if there's someone among you who's deliberately tearing down your beliefs and lifestyles, you can't allow that. Like the Old Testament made a huge distinction between someone who sins on accident, maybe without knowing or without realizing they were sinning, versus someone who deliberately says, I know that's what's expected. I know that's what's called for. Sorry, I'll do my own thing. Thank you very much. And so that's where he draws that idea from, which again, I mean, is so left field from how you and I operate, right? Because we have swung the pendulum the entire other direction. So if you're thinking about Christians and sinning, I mean, sinning after you make some kind of commitment to the Christian lifestyle, there are, there's this pendulum and it swings from side to side. Usually with a pendulum like this, both sides are wrong. And so if you're over here, you start realizing this doesn't seem right. So you swing all the way over. And for the next 50 years, you know, this doesn't feel right. And you go back and forth, back and forth. When it comes to Christian sitting, there are those two pendulums again. The first we'll call the can't lie. When it comes to um, understanding Christians and sin and how that all works, um, it's called the can't lie. The second we call the doesn't matter lie. The can't lie and the doesn't matter lie. This first lie is that Christians can't sin. Christians can't sin. You, you, you don't. Christians don't sin. There's not an allowance for sin after you become a Christian. Now, interestingly enough, in Christian history, people have taken the stance. There's an early church book written, some treated the scripture, called the Shepherd of Hermas, which says that after you're baptized, you have one sin that you can be forgiven of. And then once that happens, you're done. Based off ideas like this. So here's what would happen. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, um, but, but in the early church, there's sometimes was a practice of not getting baptized until right before you died. And it wasn't because people weren't committed, as if like, oh, well, I'm about to die, so I want to go to heaven. It was because their pastors advised them to do that. Because guess what? If you get baptized when you're 13 and you only have one sin and you live to be 40, that's an uphill battle, right? <laughs> I mean, that's a long life. So they said, well, get baptized on your deathbed. Because you never know. I mean, someone might walk in, you might snap at them, and then, okay, let's count it down. Because I want to be really clear, I don't do anything else. Here's, Christians throughout history have obviously pushed back against this. There are lots of places in the scriptures talking to Christian believers to say, when, if you sin, he's faithful to forgive. Hebrews itself would say we have a sympathetic, a merciful high priest. And so we, we push back against it. Here's another reason, the can't. The can't lie seems to be one side of this pendulum of errors. Um, because Christians do sin. So I'm always real tickled when people say Christians don't commit adultery. Because Christians commit adultery. And I'm always real tickled when people say Christians don't have drug and alcohol problems. Because, I mean, just a little secret. Christians do have drug and alcohol problems. 
So now, I mean, you can get hypersensitive and how you define the word Christian. So, I mean, well, if they do struggle with sin, they're not a Christian. That's fine and dandy, but let me follow you around for a day. And I'll say, well, that's an interesting attitude you just had there. Because that would seem not in line with... In fact, I think Jesus would call that a sin. And they go, well, okay, well, okay, yeah. Well, you can somewhat struggle with sin, those type of things. But that's one side of the pendulum. The other side is kind of where we land in today's society. And it doesn't really matter. You probably heard this phrase or one version of this phrase. God will forgive me. That's his job. Right? God will forgive me. Sometimes we're joking. Sometimes we're flippant. But God will forgive me. That's his job. But what we're doing right now doesn't really quite matter that much. I mean, we've got kind of the card in our pocket. And to that, the scriptures over and over again are going to say, no, there are some things, there are some lifestyles that you can do that despite what you claim or despite your attendance record at certain things, in the end, bring judgment, destruction, things that are not associated with those washed by the blood of Jesus. He calls it blatant sin here. If you sin deliberately. So I think we could unpack this out a little bit and say um, we're talking about premeditated unrepentant and habitual sin. So this is very much different than someone who struggles with sin. Um, this is, and I, unrepentant I think is the key word here. This is someone who doesn't struggle with sin. This is someone who doesn't even make the distinction that this is where I should be going, but instead says, I'll do what I want to do. And again, this doesn't have to be a big dramatic thing. This can be something where you wake up in 10 years and go, my bank account does not look like a Christian's bank account. My relationship with my family does not look like a Christian's relationship with their family. My business practices do not look like a Christian's business practices. And, and you didn't care the entire time. Not because you made some kind of big public flagrant decision, but because you were distracted. And you fell into this lifestyle where you thought it didn't matter. And he was saying that blatant type of sin... That's a large step on the way to what he would call shrinking back, being destroyed. Um, like So in accountability groups, there's this real kind of Christian phenomena of an accountability group where a group of people come together, usually with some sort of the same problem, and they keep each other accountable. Um, it's a great idea. And it, I mean, it really is, in theory. I've never really been a part of one that I think works itself out the way it's supposed to. Um, when I've been a part of them or seen them or even heard about them, typically what it is, it's just a circle of confessions, okay? So again, we'll use the wife-husband one just because I know no one struggles with anything in that relationship. So hypothetically, husband has a hard time loving his wife, right? Um, they read the scriptures, love your wife like Christ of the church, and the only reaction they can have is... I'm sorry, God, but you had obviously not thought about this person who would exist. Because then the rules would be a little more nuanced, okay? Um, I mean, you wouldn't ask those type of things. And so you got a group of three or four men who come together and say, you know what? I'm not loving my wife very well. Do you want to keep each other accountable? Well, what that group should do is fight to the death to love their wives. That's what an accountability group is. I'll fight if you want to fight. So you do not let me do that. I will not let you do that. And we're making a covenant. We're going to fight. What it usually turns into, again, and this is my experience, is if you meet once a week, once a week, you take turns confessing that you messed up once again. And I would just love, I mean, just thinking through this week, I would love to see an Israelite high priest come to that circle one week. And the guy's like, you know what, I messed up again. I yelled at her, you know, I made her sleep outside. It just wasn't a good week. I did not love her the way I was supposed to love her. And the Israelite priest like, okay. 
I mean, do you, okay. And then the next guy goes, you know what? We talked about last week, and I was really struggling with it. I did it again. Every day, this week, did it again. And he's going, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you knew it was wrong. Like, I'm just having a hard time. This whole little circle, like, okay. And then they're confessing, confessing. He's going, you, what is it, what's happening here? You know this is what it means to worship and to have faith and to have community but you're blatantly choosing this over and over and over again. It would make no sense to them. It would make no sense to them. This blatant, unrepentant sin. It's just it's a huge step to being destroyed. It's a step, again, maybe we don't even realize that we're taking. Maybe we don't realize that we're taking it. He says this is, is really it, it equals, it comes out to just open rebellion, to contempt. You look here in verse 29. How does he describe this type of sin, this type of lifestyle? How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved? Now listen to these phrases. By one who spurns the Son of God, by one who profanes the blood of his covenant, and by one who outrages the Spirit of grace. This is not somebody who comes into my office crying. Because they want to follow Christ with everything they've got, but there are just things warring against them in that. This is someone who, again, maybe subtly, maybe publicly, says, no thank you. No thank you. Your sacrifice, your priesthood, none of those things mean anything to me. No matter what I verbally confess, I will do my thing. Thank you very much. So you say, that's, that's nothing. I mean, just be clear on this. That's nothing less than saying, I'm not on the team. Despite what I say, despite where I go, I'm not on the team. And my life proves it. And the scriptures say, once again, I mean, what do you really expect from that kind of decision except judgment? He says, those who deliberately sin have no sacrifice. They've rejected it. They said, we don't need your sacrifice. That means nothing to us. Thank you very much, but we're pretty fine on our own. They spurn the Son of God. They profane the blood. They outrage the spirit of grace. Step number one. Here's the second step. We call it idolatry. It's a misunderstanding of who God is. And you'll see how these two steps kind of come back together and will lead to shrinking away, to turning around. Because you start blatantly sinning, and then you don't put dots together because you misunderstand who God is. You misunderstand His role in the world. You see here in, in verse 30, where we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's the wrong way to read that verse, okay? If you want to read this verse out loud, you say it like this. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. When God says this, he's not looking at the floor. He's looking in your eye. He's saying, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Then notice the second part. The Lord will judge his people. So if you were with us as we walked through Micah a couple summers ago, Micah 1 starts off with this torturous vision where God rips everything to shreds and says, I'm holding a trial because I'm not happy with what's happening. And he says, guess what? People I'm inviting, you need to realize one thing. I'm the judge, I'm the jury, and I'm the executioner. We're holding a trial. And who's invited to the trial? This is the big explosive thing in Michael 1. Who's invited? Of course, it's the pagans. It's the pagans who don't do anything. They don't care at all. But God does not care about them, at least at that point. God says, hey, churches, let's go. You're on trial. You're on trial. How could you ever think that you could ignore the orphans, the widows? How could you ever think 
they could let people starve? How could you ever think that you could ignore my commands and that we wouldn't have this encounter? So judgment to us has this real bad connotation. I'm aware of that. You and I say this, don't judge me. Who are you to judge me? Because judgment to us is kind of this hypocritical, invasive type of superiority. Um, Judgment in the scriptures and just overall as a concept is real simple. It's saying this is right and this is wrong. Now again, sometimes when you get sinful humans trying to take on that role, some things can get distorted real fast here. But the basic idea of God's justice is really the best news in the world for you and I. I mean, a necessary part of his goodness in the world is the idea that he will enact justice, judgment. That he will come to creation and say, that's wrong, it's out. I will not allow it anymore. And so, I mean, one pack like this, you want God to judge more than anything else in the world. The deepest desire of your heart is that God would completely and finally lay down a judgment on creation where he comes back and says, cancer is wrong and it is gone. I will remove it from my creation. Oppression and abuse is wrong and I'm removing those things from my creation. Poverty, injustice, those things are wrong and I'm removing them from my creation. It's a yes and amen type of idea that God is going to judge all things. Because we do not get a new creation. We don't get eternal life without that which plagues us, that which opposes God being removed, being judged. So, so all that opposes God, I mean, all of it will be destroyed, will be gotten rid of. And again, that's not, I mean, if we could just think about that's not really a terrifying idea by itself. That's a, let's write a worship song about it. You make all things new. You make everything glorious. That's the other side of the coin of God judging. How is he going to make everything glorious? By taking out everything that's not glorious. By removing it. Now here's where the rubber meets the road. What if you are a part of that which opposes God? What if with your entire life you've proven that you're committed to the very things that God is committed to removing? What happens when that encounter takes place? And Hebrews here spells it out for us. Those committed to what is being removed from creation are not going to have a pleasant conversation. I mean, he says this here. In verse 31, I mean, just try to feel the emotion here. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So again, here's idolatry. We get distracted and we misunderstand who God is. And we think that that conversation will be okay for us. We think that that won't be a fearful, terrifying thing. Okay? All eyes on me. We're okay. All eyes on me. He says in 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We can say it like this. I'm a man. Granted, not a bodybuilder, but I'm a man. I've got kind of an alpha male complex. I mean, I do. Again, I'm not going to take you in a fight. I'll slap you and run. But as far as like, as far as, I mean, I've got that. Me against the world. Let's take it on. I cannot overcommit myself to things. I'll do that. 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 I'll tell you what you to do. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what to do. I'll tell you what to do. But guess what? In front of God, I'm not puffing my chest out. 
No one is. No one is. If you sit down and think about it, you would realize that. But you get distracted and you go through life thinking that, acting like it. Because you don't, you're, I mean, you're not thinking about it. Here's a, a, just a great analogy. Wednesday night, I was here at the church writing out some thoughts on this idea, this being a fearful encounter with God. And I was going home, like 9.30 night, I'm going 59 south, okay? And at the time, if you remember, there was kind of a lightning storm happening. It's a pretty impressive lightning storm. I mean, I was in my office just, things getting blown up out there. Uh, well, I'm driving down 59, 9.30, 9.45 at night, starting to go into like bed mode, right? Um, and so I'm driving, I look down, uh, and I kind of zone out for just a second. As I look back up, this white, like, beaming light comes down right in the middle of where I'm headed. And it goes right across from me. And I promise you, my eyes hurt. This, it was, I mean, it was like the sky was just ripped apart in front of me. And here's what happens to me, okay? I had just zoned out for a second. And so for half a second... I was filled with dread. I mean, terror. I mean, I was. And then I started piecing things together. I was like, okay, well, I know that it's the lightning storm. I know I'll be okay. Uh, those type of things. But that, for that half a second, when I looked up and I saw something I didn't understand and didn't control, I was gone. I was gone. I mean, and so, I mean, I'm checking myself. Like, am I okay? <laughs> I'm a little shaky for about like 10 minutes. And I'm wondering, I mean, I'm just wondering... If this encounter is, is anything like that, except you don't piece it together in half a second, except you never figure out what it is, and you never figure out whether you can control it. You come meet the living God. You've been opposed to Him. You've been committed to things He's committed against. And the sky opens up in front of you. And you don't stand there and go, I'm glad I made my choice. You know, when God shows up in the scriptures, typically the, the most common reaction is you fall on the ground and play dead. You go bear in the wilderness on God. I mean, you fall down and hope he just kind of forgets about you. So John, in Revelation, um, Jesus shows up. And the same thing happens to John. If you'll know, I mean, no matter how you define the word best friend, you'd probably make that definition apply to Jesus and John in the Gospels. John was Jesus' best friend, part of the inner three. His best friend shows up in his glory and his majesty on the island of Patmos in Revelation. John falls down and pretends to be dead. He doesn't go high-five him. He doesn't give him a man hug and say, how you been? He says, I hope he doesn't look at me. And he has to be talked out of bringing his eyes up off the ground. But we get distracted. And we think, you know, it's, it's no big deal. It's no big deal to do what I want. It's no big deal to oppose what, what the living God is trying to do in the world. He says, that's, that's the second big step. You don't piece together that one, God's getting rid of those things. And two, if you're part of those things, I mean, what's the logical conclusion to that? What are you expecting to have happen when he encounters you? Are you starting to go, well, I'll forgive you because it's my job. Are you expecting him to be impressed with the fact that you filled out a piece of paper or you had church attendance for 40 years? I don't think you should be. So this is his warning. Those who shrink back will be destroyed. But he does not think that's going to happen to them. He doesn't think that's going to happen to them. Again, he doesn't answer the question, if it could happen. This is him on the cliff saying, don't look down. If you look down, that's what happens. But we are going this way, so strap on your boots and let's go. This is where we're going. 
And he says this. He says, hey, remember the former times, trade two, when you were enlightened and when you had this boldness, when things pressed in on you and you got through them together and you had faith and loyalty and you worshiped. And he says, now you have need for that confidence again. Now you have need for endurance. He says, let's press on for we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. For those who have faith preserve their souls by following him into the future. Two things, I think, lead the way for Christians, this path we're walking on. The first, attentiveness to Jesus. The first is, is, is avoiding at all costs this kind of spiritual ADD, this distraction. And this is where all we've ever talked about comes into play. This is why we have community. So I can see the speck in your eye much more than I can see the plank in my own. That's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a bad thing because I tend to be arrogant and judgmental. It's a good thing because you can tell me there's a plank in my eye. I couldn't see it. This week I read a quote from a Christian ethicist talking about Christian behavior. He says, the only way to really know yourself is to make yourself open to other people's judgments. If there's anything anybody in the world knows, it's that the person most equipped to lie to you is you. You can rationalize just about anything to yourself. I mean, people pick a character in history, Hitler, anybody. They didn't really think they were the most evil person in the world. Some of them may have had quasi-good intentions at some point in their life. But they rationalized it to themselves and they never heard other people who said, you're wrong. You're wrong. So you and I, I mean, we, I mean, yeah, we can rationalize anything. We need community. We need people to wake us up. We need the scriptures constantly so that we don't go, oh, I'm good. But we read Hebrews and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Maybe some things need to change in my life. We need attentiveness. And then lastly, we need faith. We need enduring faith. We need faith that would look at the past and look at the future Look at the past, what God has done. Look at the future, what's coming for us, a possession, a reward. And then apply that in the present by making a decision that we will follow. That His sacrifice, His priesthood will define who I am. That tomorrow when I make decisions, when I talk to people, that is who I am. Because that's what faith is. It's loyalty and trust and allegiance. And that is what gets you to endure faith to preserve your soul and with that hebrews is going to launch into a whole chapter of just listing out people who had faith trying to define it for us what does it look like it's really the most famous chapter in hebrews when hebrews gets preached usually let's just do chapter 11 right but chapter 11 makes no sense outside of the rest of the book outside of him saying look you can't do this we need to do this we need to press on with faith we need to press on with faith. There are parts in Hebrews that people don't read because they don't understand. Melchizedek. There are parts in Hebrews that people don't read because they don't want to understand. Does that make sense? See that distinction there? Once again, the question, I mean, could a Christian lose their salvation? Depends on so many different things, how you define Christian, things like that. The scriptures are pretty clear. He who began a good work finishes it. The scriptures are pretty clear. Faith means trusting in Jesus' sacrifice. 
despite what the circumstances around you look like. I think the idea is not so much that you would doubt God, but that you would examine your own life. That you would say, am I walking? Am I looking down? He's writing to a group of people and he's saying, look, I don't think this is going to happen to us. But you need to be aware. Wake up. Open up your eyes. Stretch a little bit. You're falling asleep at the wheel. We need to go forward. He says, if we don't go forward, I mean, put some pieces together of what would happen to us. But we're going this way. So let's go. Tie your shoes. Get a team together. Let's walk. Let's pray. Let's worship. Let's read the scriptures. Let's have community. Because we're going this way. We're following Jesus. We've got our eyes set on him. As you'll say in just a couple chapters, fix your eyes on him, on his sacrifice, on his faith, on his priesthood. And let's go. Let's walk. Are the consequences if you don't do that? Yes. But we who are possessed by the Spirit and dwelt by the Spirit, we who joined ourselves together in a covenant of people following Christ together, we who have loyalty and faith, we're not those who shrink back, he says. We're not. We don't shrink back and face destruction. We have faith. And we go forward. And we find our great reward. We find the things that we praise him for. We get the encounter with God where we're on our face. And he says, as Hebrews would say, I'm not ashamed to call you one of my own. And this is just the craziest verse I've ever read in my life. If there's ever a point where, where Jesus would say, hey, that's my brother and I'm happy about it. But for those who, who persevere, for those who have faith, not those who don't ever struggle, for those who keep pushing on with each other, who don't give up, who say, you know what, I'm going to fight. Will you fight with me? We're going to fight and we're going to go up here. We get to the end and, and he says, hey, let me convince you something. Look at me. Look up. Look up. You're mine. I am your God. You are my people. Your sins are forgiven. I've transformed you. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Even right now, he's in the throne room of God, interceding as our high priest. Our reaction as Christians, let's go. Let's press forward. Let's obey. Let's worship. Let's have community. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. I thank you for the scriptures that you've given us. I thank you even when they maybe confuse us and rub us the wrong way. I thank you that you can work through that and you can let that tension do something in our hearts. I pray that we would not we would not be those who shrink back, Father. But that through your help, through your grace, through your spirit, we're those who together as one people move forward. And I praise you for who you are. I praise you for the sacrifice that washes our sins away but doesn't stop there and then transforms us from the inside out. Where slowly but surely we follow you and find you here, now, joy, salvation, life. We anticipate that encounter when we're on the ground and you say, look up into my eyes. I'm your God. You're my people. We love you. We can't praise you enough. We ask that you would give us the strength and the grace to follow you with all boldness, with all endurance, with all love. Let's in your sons.
precious, perfect, saving name, our only hope that we have. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.